0: Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve.
1: I'm Erica, and I'm Sarah. So, friends, we have finished the Book of Esther. We worked through all ten chapters. We we talked about the plot of Esther. We ended up with our happily ever after ending, which is unusual in Scripture. But there's a few things that we kind of have left just laying out there. Yeah. So we're going to take some time and we're going to go with it Sarah. So I think we need
2: to spend some time unpacking the happily ever after Mm -hmm. ending because a whole lot of people died for that happily ever after ending and I am sure their family and friends did not consider this a happily ever after. Mm -hmm. As well as we need to revisit the question Where is God in all of this? Because we had to ask that question way back when we introduced Esther as a book. Because the name of God does not appear anywhere in this book. But yet, God still seems to be active and present in the world. So we need to kind of revisit, where is God in all of this? Especially in light of the violence, um, both in this story and throughout history.
0: Yeah. Um, and maybe that's a good place for us to start—is this "Where is God?" question? Um, because, like you say, unlike say, uh, you know, Moses having a talk with a burning bush in the Book of Exodus, where God not only is visibly present in the story as a burning bush, but like there are spoken lines attributed to him, God said this. We don't get any of that here, and yet, even 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 that that uh, pregnant question that Mordecai asks. To, to Esther, you know, who knows but that you've been brought to this time for just such a time as this, kind of has this implicit, you know, he doesn't say God, but it's basically like, I'm, I think God raised you up. And like, who, who has done the raising up of this? Oh, God seems to be. And Mordecai even says, uh, we talked about this back in chapter 4, is, uh, he says, if you don't act now, rescue will help from another quarter. And again, it seems to be the, the implication is. If, if you're not going to be the deliverer, God will raise up a different deliverer. God is willing to keep doing that. Um, but, but more God doesn't come out and say it. And so not only how do we recognize where is God in this story, but how does that help us in, in our lives when you don't get a burning bush to tell you what to do?
1: So I have a question. I don't know if we have an answer for this. But why isn't God ever mentioned like, directly in this book. I, I, I don't know if it's the time period it's written in or just, you know, the, the, the place in which it's written, you know, but we have other books from exile where sure. God is very clearly, like, Daniel is very clearly God is all over that book.
0: Sure, although even the way God shows up in Daniel's books, it feels different in that, like, Daniel gets messages from God that are like dreams or visions mm-hmm. where he could say, I heard this from God, but as far as we know, there are very few moments where anybody else in the room hears a voice uh, or sees a burning bush, and then you get, like, Daniel being rescued from the lions, end, and his answer is, God sent the angel to shut the mouth, mm-hmm. but um, it's, it's, it, it, it's trickier, and I think that may be a, that may be a piece of it, is like, um, even Daniel's experience of knowing where God is is much more individual or subjective and different than everybody saw the sea part and everybody <laughs> walked through. Like it, yeah. But it does feel different. Um.
2: So I'm, I'm a big fan of the theory that this isn't religious writing. That mm-hmm. this is storytelling and probably the author of Esther probably never anticipated that it would be included in our scriptures, Mm. let alone the Jewish scriptures. Like it's, it it has a completely different feel. Like it's not really like at times it's trying to be historical, but then other times it's very clearly not being historical. It's like if somebody had asked William Shakespeare to write about a historical event as history and like you can kind of tell he's just like i don't really know how to do this i'm gonna try but like also wouldn't it be funny if this person said this (laughs) like
0: i think that example might be a helpful one because we do have examples in in shakespeare's plays where he's clearly writing about historical people or even historical events but there are times where yeah, because the dramatist, the storyteller and comes out like there's there are things that are heightened or things that like, alright, I'm going to try and communicate this in words in ways I can't bring everybody out to a battlefield, so I'm going to convey what I need to uh, in, in words or speeches or things like that. And yeah, that, that that's a part of how this story seems to work.
1: And some of the play on words that we talked about yep. especially early in Esther um, you know, I think leads more to that because you have that occasionally throughout the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures and sometimes, especially in the Psalms, but not like you do in Esther. Yeah. Right? The, the jokes and the play on words and those kind of things. So that sure. makes a lot of sense. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily meant to be written as what would become scripture.
2: Yeah, and I'm my own best educated guess is that it might be included in scripture because it was something that rabbis were constantly pulling out of, like, you know, the way that we sometimes bring in current secular fictional work mm-hmm. to. Better to help us with our sermons. Sure. Like my own educated guess is that that is why Esther was included in the scriptures. It's because rabbis kept going back to it and going, yeah.
1: Like well, look also, at
2: this moment when God was active in the world and like mm-hmm. helped us His people out. It also
1: includes a holiday that you know the Jews right. have celebrated since then. Right. Mm-hmm. right so right. I mean that you
0: know, that makes sense. It it almost to me feels like. um in, in the Lutheran tradition, um, we have this weird, like, what do we do with the story and legacy of Martin Luther himself? Like, as a tradition, we're supposed to be like, Luther isn't authoritative with Scripture, and yet you'll find Lutherans quoting Luther's stories left and right, and with a sort of like, you know, this is important because he's an important figure to our tradition. Or there's a collection of Luther's what they call the table talk. I mean, these are just those conversations yeah. he had, literally sitting drinking beer that Katie had brewed around the table with whoever were the guests at his house. And some of them are classic gems, and some of them very clearly this is off the cuff. It's good thing they didn't have Twitter in the 16th century, but like, like this would be like Martin Luther's drunken Twitter feed. Um, uh, and I, I think in a similar way, it's like, yeah, there's times where you'll run into Lutherans who'll be like, yeah, you know, like he says on the table talk. And we don't mean to give it the weight of, like, that mm-hmm. this is the same as a Sermon on the Mount, but there's a certain, like, it's a go-to, handy, um, and, and sometimes you have to know the history of what's going on in Luther's world to make sense of the table talk, and sometimes it's just helpful of a broad, illustrating you know, truth that's timeless. Um, but I, in 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 a way, it almost feels like Esther has that same kind of a feel. Like it was a go to resource to reach for, but that it 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 didn't intend itself. The, the the way it got handed down to us wasn't with the same kind of. This will help you see the will of God in your life as clearly as thou shalt not murder guys. I mean, like, there's a clarity in the commandments of this is from God, don't murder. You don't have to suss out. What does that mean in my life? It means don't murder, you know. Yeah. Um, but Esther's a lot trickier to make the leap. And maybe that's a, an important difference, that as, as a story, Esther seems a lot less interested in making direct connections to us for life application because hopefully you are not living in a time where your people are going to be ethnically cleansed I mean like hopefully you don't live in a time where you're the one who has to fight off genocide um, and so this story doesn't make direct connections in quite the same way as the commandments or even the prophets when they'll say things like hey you know how you're cheating people in the marketplace stop that this is, this is a lot more here's a story God was somehow in the midst of it I don't, know, I don't know what to do with it
1: but how often in our lives do we not have that direct yes control? Um, stop doing this, do this, that those kind of yep. directives from God. Yep. Um but we're more like you know, we might not be dealing with a possible genocide of our own people. Yeah. As Esther was dealing with, but like we have to figure out, okay, where yep. is God in the, this? Yep. Where is God leading me when I haven't heard an outside or even an internal voice of God saying, I want you moving in this direction.
0: Yeah. And this is why I think it's in one of those weird providential ways. It's good that we've got a story like this in our scriptures that force us to ask the difficult questions, like how do I discover what God's intention or will for me is in my situation when I don't have a note on my pillow or an email in my inbox or a burning bush? Um, and that our, a lot of our lived lives are a lot more like what happens with Esther—that it's a wise voice like Mordecai, or the situation that us calls her, somebody has to speak up, somebody has to step up. But it's interesting. I guess one of the concerns I have about it, um, is that it is super easy for us to use a story like this and just sort of run into the, well, God must have a specific mission for me every day of my life, and it must be to this level of detail. And I'm not sure that's always the case. You know. And I, Again, I think that there's, there's a, a, a danger in a bunch of directions. It's possible to say, well, God doesn't really care what I do as long as I don't murder somebody, I'm free to do whatever I want. And on the other hand, sort of a God has chosen that at 9.15, I will buy bread from the grocery store so that I can run into so-and-so and I can have... The, and like, I'm not sure that it's that specific either. Um, but how do you suss that out? How do, you, how do you discern that? That That's the tough thing.
1: And there may be some personal revelations like that Mordecai got that we just never directly hear that mm-hmm. that was a personal revelation to him. Yeah.
0: And I think part of one of the difficult things about is, as Christians who treat this as scripture is that... Part of what we're given then to treat as authoritative is this particular way the story is told instead of saying, well, Mordecai must have been given a vision and and th- that's where he gets his clarity from. That, but I don't have that in my Bible. I'm left with sometimes all you got is this sort of gut feeling or this the, 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 vo- the voice of wise elders like Mordecai saying, you've got a position, you've got a platform, you've got to speak up. Um, and that's tough because it means running the risk what if I'm wrong, you know? And I think that's one of the things I find so helpful but also frightening about a story like this is that um, at, at least when you're Moses given commandments, the people may not like the commandments, but Moses can be really solid. Nope, I heard the burning bush say, I saw the figure of God write the commandment, you're not supposed to murder. Okay, got it. And even if nobody agrees with him, he can, but I'm sure of it. And same thing with like Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You know, Elijah is sure, God is real, God told him do this, and... Esther and Mordecai are in so much more of a, I know I'm supposed to do something, but what, and how do I figure it out, and what if I'm wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's scary, and I think for a lot of us, we assume that the job of our religious faith is to give us certainty, and a lot more, it does not give us certainty, but it gives us, I don't know, direction or confidence when we feel like we have to act or speak or whatever, but not with like neat and tidy answers all the time.
1: Well, you pointed out that that Esther has power and and privilege. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's maybe one of the biggest takeaways from this book. Mm -hmm. Is that when you have power and privilege, you need to use those to speak up for those who don't. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you're going to get it wrong. Esther happened to get it right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, and that's great, and that's wonderful. Sometimes we're going to use our power and privilege, and we're going to get it wrong. But that's okay, too. Because that's just how we learn how to discern what God is calling us to do. Because sometimes I I hear things and I think, okay, God's calling me to do this. And then I find out later that, oh wait, no, God was calling me to go. I thought God was calling me to go right and God really wanted me to go left. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I've heard people say, uh, this is one of those insights that's still working its way through me. But it says that sometimes you have to speak up not because you're convinced your words will change things, but because if you don't speak up, the circumstances will change you. And that like, Mm -hmm. there's a certain amount of like, Mm-hmm. It may feel like I'm yelling at a, you know at the tidal wave or something like that, and I know I can't stop it. But unless in this moment I do something, I will have you know become complicit. I will I, I won't like the kind of person I've become if I just keep my head down. Um, and that seems an important takeaway too.
1: Well, I, for, for myself, I know the more I speak up against injustice, the more confident I feel in being able to do so, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and the more feel. But if I just sit back and just like you know not say anything. Well, then when a bigger injustice comes along, right, what am I going to tend to do? Oh, I'm just going to sit back and not right. say anything. Right. Where if I keep trying to tackle the small ones that I see it just in my little world. Yeah. That I, I hopefully am more prepared to yeah. tackle the
0: bigger things. This, this to me feels very, very much like that famous line of Martin Niemoller out of World War II. They, at first, they came for the communists. I didn't speak mm-hmm. up because I was a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and, yep. and then they came for the Jews, and then they came for me. And by that time, there's no one else left to speak up. Um, and th- there is that sort of sense of there are moments where speaking up is about what kind of person will I become if I don't act in this in this situation and yet on the other hand knowing that there's when it's especially when it's little things when it's not genocide it's hard to know is this a big deal is this something worth speaking up about or is this and then i should you know just just deal with that That, that's it's tough discerning that and knowing that every choice you make shapes the person you become for the next choice that that's difficult but I do think your point is such a good one that part of what makes the case so clear that Esther has to speak up is there's nobody else in quite her position. Mm-hmm. She has the platform. She has the ability to have the king's ear. She has, in a lot of ways, the privilege of, like, she's been groomed for this moment. Yeah. Um, and to not use that to help save people is, is a waste. Um, and that, that again it comes back at me of man there's lots of times where I've, I've got platform and privilege and the ability and it is so scary to think well I, yeah how, how should I address this how should I speak up how should I deal with this moment um, especially if the question is well, what good will it do and sometimes it's not about I think I'll change the world but I don't want I don't, I to don't become the kind of person I can't live with or I can't look in the, you know, look in the eye if I, if I don't say something or speak up or, that, or respond that's tough that, that, that's, that's tough, yeah. that's tough. There's this line that has haunted me ever since the first time I saw the movie from uh, V for Vendetta, um, uh, which is not a family movie, so don't go take young children to it. <laughs> um, but there's a line the one character says, our, our integrity sells for so little, but in the end it is all we really have. Um, and that, i guess that it is that same idea that like to keep your integrity in this life um it, it may not change the world No, it may not be that that anybody you know declares a holiday because somebody you know mm-hmm. it kept their integrity but like it that's that's the last thing you have um and that it's worth holding on to that um when when conscience dictates that you have to you know now I, I want to open yet another can of worms, if you're willing, um, because we, it, like, it, I, I, think, I think it's good that we're still wrestling with the where's God in my day-to-day life when there's not a burning bush. I think we also have to wrestle with uh, how we deal with the happy ending in this story and not let ourselves off the hook. Um, And what I mean by that is, like, it is easy to say, oh, well, there's a happy ending, so therefore God must have been behind the scenes orchestrating the happy ending. That's how you identify God. When things go well, that's God. When things go badly, that's the devil. I mean, like, we we so easily fall into that. Um, Good thing, where my team wins, it must have been God. My team loses, it must have been the devil. Um, And... One of the things that is especially difficult living in the 21st century with this story is, even though all the Jews were saved at the end of Esther's book, six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust, and as as a community, as a, as, a, as an ethnicity and a, and a faith group and a, a community, of people today, that's still got to be a, how do we deal with that? And the Holocaust has left marks at least as powerful as Purim on Judaism today, and there is still the remembrance of the Shoah, uh, the the Holocaust uh, today that. You know, dramatically it's impacted, what does it mean to be of the Jewish faith today? And Christians have to wrestle with it, too, because for so many Christians, our role in the midst of those um, times was silence or complicity, or, well, it doesn't affect me directly, and we've got to wrestle with this.
1: So, I mean, God saves the, Jew- the Jews from slavery in Egypt. Mm-hmm. God saves the Jews in, in Persian, under the Persian Empire you know, we have all these times that God saves his people throughout the Old Testament, and then we get to the 20th century, and. Yeah. I mean, there's still
0: Jews around. I mean, right, right, right. There wasn't a complete annihilation like Hitler wanted, but still, like, how do how we.
1: Right. And that's something, like, I'm a history buff, and the Holocaust has always been an area of interest mm-hmm. for me to study and how we got to that point. But, mm-hmm. like, I've read people like Ellie Wiesel. Yeah, who, sure. Who directly questioned in his uh, most famous book, Night, like, where is God in Exactly, all this? exactly. And there's a lot of Jews that survived the Holocaust that, that felt the same way. Yeah. Where is God in all this? And, and I still don't know how to answer that question.
0: Yeah. And it difficult, I mean, it's difficult for us as Christians having any kind of conversation like this knowing that we're not on our turf exactly. Like th- These are issues that we should tread very carefully on. Um, And at the same time, we can't let ourselves off the hook and say, boy, I'm glad I didn't have to wrestle with those questions. We have to at least wrestle with those questions. And on top of that, we have to ask the additional challenging questions of, what do we do for those of us whose uh, Christian traditions were just as much in the side of complicity with the Holocaust as there were a handful of resistors? I saw somebody recently say in social media, um, Lutherans are really great at remembering the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the resistor of the Nazis, but the reason he stands out in their memory is that most Lutheran Christians in Germany during the Holocaust were either silent or part of the Nazi party mm-hmm. um, and said, this is okay because it's not directly affecting me or Hitler's bringing law and order and I'd like to have that so I'm willing to let other people get disappeared. Um, and that, that, that's tough for, for me to say that... that as much as I want to point to, there were folks like Niemöller and von Bonhoeff from the Confessing Church who said, no, this is not okay. God is there in the midst of the ovens and the gas chambers, and God is trying to, to stop this from happening. On the other hand, a lot of people went along with it, and that, that's, that's tough for me. To, how do we deal with that part of our tradition? For that matter, it seems like this, this opens yet another can of worms, is that, like, okay, if, if you want to say in the Holocaust it's good thing that the Allies came along and ended the war and stopped Hitler eventually. Uh Um, That also raises the question of the backlash violence that shows up at the end of Esther, too, of like, now you've got 75,000 people killed at the end of Esther, and it's justified because, well, they were going to kill us, And what comes out of World War II is the Cold War and the possibility of nuclear genocide. It's not like we solved the problem of violence at the end of World War II and we said, now we've learned our lesson, we won't kill each other. We built bigger weapons to kill each other bigger and faster and more. Um, And So that doesn't seem like that's a, a very meaningful, happy ending either there.
2: I mean, likewise, how did we get Japan to surrender? Right. We dropped two big bombs on them. Right. And like... And that wasn't just military bases. That was civilians. And, like, that is... Like, previously, that was not really done. Like, you didn't bomb civilians. Right.
0: You bombed the military. Right. And, I mean, we could very quickly become a podcast about military history, too. Because, because like, yeah, there was all sorts of questions about how World War II changed what war looked like. And that it was Mm -hmm. now a time of total war where whole societies were mobilized in every way toward fighting the war effort in a way that had never happened before um but i guess part of what i want to say is that any of those times that we want to put a simple oh happy ending war is over we won that must mean god is on our side like i'm not really sure that we're allowed to do that because exactly as you say hiroshima and nagasaki is even even if the calculus was on the allied side this was necessary to prevent even more loss of life in an invasion of japan and again there's that argument um it's also it's 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 not a it's not an unqualified victory that like it's it's messy and it came at the cost of a lot of people, um, who were not directly trying to be our enemy, um, and that that's difficult.
2: Yeah. The the question is it is was it worth it? Right. 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 And that's so hard to say because you get into hypotheticals. Right. Um, hypotheticals against actual lives. Right. right. And that's always that's that's hard to balance out.
0: Yeah. And maybe that's part of why a story like Esther's is helpful even if it doesn't give us clear answers, even and maybe exactly because it doesn't give us clear answers. As much as I want a book of the Bible to say, and in your life, flip a coin and that'll tell you what to do. Esther instead says sometimes things are really ambiguous. And sometimes the best you can say is I did my best and look, this seems like it came out as a happy ending and I did what was right uh, as far as I could see and I used my position to try and make the world better or protect the people who are most at risk. And yet also, now you know, the story continues and sometimes there's a backlash against the thing I thought was a, an end of the story. And things are always a lot messier.
2: This reminds me of Frozen 2.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah, and, of course it If does. you haven't
2: seen it, you, you should. <laughs> I'm going to try not to spoil it too it. much. But it, it, it revolves around the two main characters, Anna and Elsa, finding out that their family, their kingdom, did something really bad. And they, like, the moral of the story is basically, well, I'm going to just try to do the next right thing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm going to find out that that is not the right thing, that that was the wrong thing to do. But all I can do is try to do the next right thing because I can't go back in time. I can't change that decision that either I made or my family made, you know, because I can't go back in time. Right. All I can do is take the next step forward and make do the next right thing, and hopefully that is the right thing and not the wrong thing, yeah. but that's all you can keep doing is try to do the next right
0: thing. And, and that's really, really helpful. It even warrants a song in the movie that is precisely <laughs> yeah. about that, do the next right. And like more, often, more than I would like to admit, that bit from that movie has given me a lot of guidance since I saw that movie, more than any Disney movie has a right to give me moral guidance, um, and I think, in a way, that's really helpful because, like, yeah, any any time we're forced to make big decisions, or any I mean, any decisions at all we make, will have implications and ripple effects bigger than we can foresee. And while I may not be responsible for what ripples out from my choices way, way, way down the line, I am responsible for as far as I can tell with the choices mm-hmm. in front of me. How do I do what I can that's as as well to do to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly? Like this is what we're called to do. And in a sense. Like To me, that, that's part of what is powerful about Esther, is that she's not asked to do something superhuman. She's asked to speak. And she does. She does it wisely. She, like we've talked about how she is clever and thoughtful and intelligent with her words in ways that prevent the king from having any reason not to listen to her. Um, and she does what seems right in that moment for her. Um, and I guess that raises the question of how, how do we discern what's Right. And that, that, to me, is part of why, as people of faith, we live in communities together that study scriptures, that tell stories that are the voices of discernment for each other, because on our own, we might come up with vastly different pictures of what the right thing is, and part of what we do in community is we say things like, well, the right thing looks like justice, and justice looks like this, or the right thing looks like mercy, and mercy looks like this, is it? the stories that we tell that become our scriptures shape our understanding of what those virtues look like so that we know what justice is, we know what compassion looks like, so that we don't end up with, I just need somebody for me to throw charity at so I feel good about myself. That's a, a danger, I suppose. Or thinking justice is the same as revenge. Because um, again, like there's lots of folks who in the name of, I'm trying to get justice when really they're, they're just trying to you know, deal with their own bloodthirstiness. Um. I guess for me, that raises another really important challenge that I want to pick both of your brains on. And I'm not sure that we'll resolve it in the space of a, you know, the remaining minutes of a podcast episode, but um, if, if we're landing for right now at a, at a position of sometimes all you can do is the next right thing, um, what do we do, or asking where's God in a situation, What? What? how do we live with times, because it feels like we're living in one, where... You may ask a room full of people, where is God in this situation? Pick a current event, pick an issue, pick a national culture issue, whatever. And you'll get as many opinions as there are people in the room um, about what God wants or where God's will is. And um, how how do we deal with people who all say they're listening for God, they're all trying to do the next right thing. And we can't all live with what that, we can't all agree on what that is. And because everybody's convinced God has told them <laughs> um, what the next right thing is, everybody is sure they're right. How, how do you deal with that? And well, fix I, it.
2: <laughs> I, I think it's hard. We as Christians are called to love one another, and in times when there are so there are groups of people who all think that they're doing the, the right thing mm-hmm. and are not agreeing. And it's, like, so polarizing where there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of people in the middle. It's really hard to love one another mm-hmm. because it's gotten to the point of um, demonizing each other. Like, mm-hmm. we are no longer, like, we, it, it's hard to see the humanity in each other. And, and that's hard. And I think it's, I think for me as a Christian, it's going back to constantly reminding myself that God is love. Mm -hmm. and that I am called to love my brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. and that my brothers and sisters might not agree with me and um, that I I am still called to love them Mm -hmm. Um, even if I don't feel like they're loving me or loving other people that I also love Mm -hmm. but that ultimately I am called to love
1: I have been replaying in my head over and over and, and I've quoted these two the first and second greatest commandment, I can't tell you how many times in the last six, seven months. Mm-hmm. Love God, love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, if what you think is right does not fall into one of those two categories, mm-hmm. then you're not right.
0: And maybe even we could suggest, let me, let me throw this half formed thought out, that in the end, those are not, like different routes, but in the end, yeah. they turn out to be two sides of the same coin. Um, and that I don't get to say, well, this thing that I want to do, it's terrible for my neighbor, but I can justify that somehow it's good for God. Mm-hmm. Nope, that's not a thing. Um, like if I would say, you know, I want to tear down the homeless shelter so I can build a bigger church parking lot. I'm not, nope, nope, nope. You don't get to say that's good for God, therefore it doesn't matter if it's bad for neighbor. There's mm-hmm. got to be another fix. Um, and and that, I think, is a really important point. That, like, okay, it comes down to this idea of love of neighbor. And, like you say, Sarah, regardless of whether that neighbor has been very neighborly to me or others, and also that mm-hmm. this is grounded in the, in the the great commandments that Jesus talks about. And there, I think, is another piece for us, at least as part of the Christian tradition, that even, our, even how do you define what love looks like? We look to, well, tell us stories about Jesus. Jesus gives us this glimpse of what love looks like in human interaction. Because Sometimes we make the mistake, I think, of treating love as just niceness and never having to say difficult truths. And No, Jesus is clear that sometimes love means you have to say unpleasant things Um, because you care about people who are either getting stepped on or whatever. Um, And it's not loving... It it would be wrong to say, to tone police Esther and say, oh, it's not very loving to Haman to foil his plan. No, you have to speak up for all these people who are going to get killed otherwise. Um, So loving doesn't just mean be quiet. And on the other hand... Loving doesn't mean being a jerk. No.
2: I, I think for me, becoming a parent has helped me to understand that <laughs> so well. Yeah. I've been in the thick of potty training a very stubborn three-year-old. And, you know, he has no, pro- like, no problems peeing wherever he wants to be. <laughs> and as a loving parent, I sometimes get mad about that. Mm-hmm. Um but ultimately I love him so I want him to know that you know what peeing in the corner is not okay and it's never going to be
0: okay <laughs> right right right
2: um but yeah I think becoming a parent has helped helped that lesson for me
0: That's just, that is that example is, is I think a, a helpful one as much as it is also a graphic one but like it's yeah. help it's helpful because like um While obviously you love your child and there's lots of times you're willing to do gross disgusting things like clean up messes and unpleasant places for the sake of your child, on the other hand, you know for the big picture for his life as a human being, that's not a habit, that's an okay thing. Now, certainly not as he gets older, not when he goes to school, not when he's a grown-up. And so this is one of those things you've got to nip in the bud now. And, I, I, and it's, it's that like love of who you will be in the future, or that love of your, the whole story of your life, that it's not that I'm unwilling to do this unpleasant thing of cleaning up a mess now. It's more because I care about the kind of person you become. I don't want to be someone to be in the corner. Um, that I, Yeah, you need to take a, a hard line on things. And it becomes maybe even more pressing when you've got two kids in a household, like I know you're learning with wrestling with two in the household as well, and I'm struggling through that learning process every day, that sometimes when one hits the other or one yells at the other, whatever, it's I care about the one who, did the, who caused the offense, who hit their brother or sister, like you have to learn that's not okay because life is not going to be kind to you if you think you can do that, but also I care about the one who got hurt in this moment, and so you may not like getting yelled at because you hit your sister or you hit your brother, but it's because I love that person who's been hurt. And I also love you at the same time. So whatever it means to love people, it has to be able to speak difficult truths sometimes, yeah. but vulnerably it sounds. So like this is this is messy, ongoing stuff. And unfortunately, we have now come through a whole series on Esther without a set of like simple bullet points of here's how always to know what God wants. But I kind of think that's a faithful place to land because I'm not sure that the Book of Esther wants to give us five simple bullet points to always know where God is. But it's about this difficult, sometimes all you get is enough light for the next step in front of you, huh? So speaking of not knowing that the next step is in front of us, we're at the end of a series and we hope you'll join us for a future series uh, next time on A Crazy Faith Talk. But what will it be? Good question. It's, just... a su- it's
2: a
1: surprise to all of us. We're <laughs> going gonna to do
0: the next right thing. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. See
1: you